Well, good morning, church family. And uh, Hannah, that was just beautiful. Thank you so much uh, for uh, uh, leading us to the throne of the Lord and uh, reminding us how important it is for our ears to be opened so that we can hear the, the ringing truth of the gospel. Um, if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name is Randy, and we're just delighted to have you here and really counted a privilege to get to worship together. We're in a season of Advent at Windsor Road. Um, Advent, the, the, the name Advent um, means coming or appearing or visitation. And the title of the series that we're in is called When Love Appeared. When Love Appeared. And we've been talking about how Christ, brother Carl Friedrich, the separation of whites from blacks in the southern states really does make a rather shameful impression. The way the southerners talk about the Negroes is simply repugnant. And in this regard, the pastors are no better than the others. I still believe that the spiritual songs of the southern Negroes represent some of the greatest artistic achievements in America it is a bit unnerving that a country with so inordinately many slogans about brotherhood, peace, and so on, such things still continue completely uncorrected. That was January 2nd, 1931. Yeah, he saw, he saw through our self-deception, all right? Here's the rest of the story. Carl Friedrich wrote him back in a letter at the end of January of 1931. And this is what Carl Friedrich wrote to Dietrich. He said, I'm glad to hear that you have the opportunity for studying the Negro problem so thoroughly. And then Carl Friedrich goes on to talk about how uh, the problem of racism in America is what kept him, that is Carl Friedrich, uh, from moving there with his family. Uh, lest his children adopt such repugnant ways. And then Friedrich says he just, you know, says he just can't see how this problem is ever going to get corrected. And then he wrote this. In any event, our Jewish question is a joke compared to it. Only a few would still claim they are repressed here. At least not in Frankfurt. That is what we call a blind spot. In fact, the Jewish question was no joke. That was two years before Adolf Hitler came to power. How is it possible for Bonhoeffer's brother to have so clearly seen racism in America while being so blind to it in his own country. How's that, how does that happen? But yet that's the very nature of self-deception. That's the very nature of a blind spot. That's why they call it a blind spot. I don't know that I have it. Our Advent scripture today talked about deliverance from the darkness 
And I believe the darkness of self-deception. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, praises God that rescue is finally on the way with the coming of the Lord. Zechariah sings how John's sole ministry will be a ministry of preparing God's people for the arrival of truth embodied, truth incarnate, truth in the flesh, Jesus the Son of the Most High. And Zechariah sings of how his son's vocation will be that of going before the Lord to prepare his ways. Verse 76. And then giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And this kind of knowledge that's being spoken of is not the kind of knowledge that just has to do with informational data. We're talking about transformational truth. Truth that's powerful enough to reorient the heart. Truth that's capable of transforming the heart. Truth that's able to empower a change of heart. A heart that is turned from darkness to light. A heart that is transformed from sitting in self-deception to walking in the light of the truth that God has given by his tender mercy. Verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It is because of God's mercy that the sunrise visits us and the light of truth, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 78 and 79 actually summarize the Bible. The Bible is the story of people who have been sitting in the darkness of self-deception and in that very state, out of God's tender mercy, not because of any merit on such people sitting in, they don't even know that they're lost. The Bible is the story of God acting and acting with the light of truth, transformational truth. God acts to shine his light on those sitting in darkness. And I just want to take some time to review that story with us this morning. The story of darkness into light. And I'll just give you the heads up. The darkness part of it is pretty depressing. All right? So, take a deep breath and let's get ready to be depressed. Oh, not just yet. Not just yet. Because the Bible doesn't begin with the depression of deception. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Page 1. <laughs> the Bible doesn't begin with depression and darkness. The Bible begins with the truth. Truth. Genesis 1, God, the source of all truth, made the heavens and the earth. Truth spoke, and light came to be. Truth generated galaxies and solar systems and planets and stars. Truth fashioned uh, uh, heavens and the oceans and the earth. Truth 
made forests and vegetation and animal life and plant life and ocean life and truth. Created the pinnacle of it all. The man and the woman. Created in the image of truth. Adam and Eve were commissioned as truth icons. Image bearers of the one true God. All of creation would look to these truth icons. Commissioned as priests. A priest is a, simply a mediator. A priest is a bridge. And through the lives of the man and the woman, all creation would know what God is like as their lives were to mirror the truth of the one true God. In this community of truth, Eden was to be this temple garden of truth. God set Adam and Eve there to steward the garden and to take care of it and to grow it and to sustain it and to subdue it and to multiply. They were... They were to speak the truth. They were to live the truth. They were to love the truth. Creation was to be a culture of truth. Can you imagine every evening conversing with your creator about truth in all of its forms? Truth about anatomy. Truth about um, astronomy, biology, botany, chemistry, psychology, sociology, zoology. Truth about themselves, the truth about how they were made and created. After all, their creator would know more about them than they would themselves. And they would learn every day. And they would feast on this buffet of truth. And, and, and they would speak truth to one another. And in this community of truth... The creator who is truth himself set before them just one rule, one law. You may eat of all of the trees in this forest garden temple. Feast on these trees. Feast on the berries. Feast on the bushes. Feast on the vegetation. Feast on all of the trees except for one. Just what? There was only one law pre-fall. You may feast of all of the trees in the forest garden part, but stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not partake of it. On the day you do, you will surely die. That was it. That was all they had. And it was set as a test, a test of truth. Will they trust God's truth? Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. And the first words out of his mouth, did God really say? Think about that for a moment. God's very first sentence were constructive words of truth. The serpent's very first sentence questioned such truth. And now, Adam and Eve have a decision to make. And they stood at the precipice of one of the most important moments in all of human history. And a hush 
fell over creation. As people, what the creation was wondering, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Whose truth will they trust? And you know what happened. Truth was delivered, and then truth was questioned. Did God really say? And then truth was modified. Did you get that there? Verses 2 and 3, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Well, God hadn't originally said that. See, it was modified uh, as if to say, well, we can edit God's truth. Really? Truth delivered, truth questioned, truth modified, truth denied. The serpent, you will not die. And then truth discarded. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband. He was standing right there with her when the conversation with the serpent took place and he refused to speak the truth to the serpent. He was commissioned to rule over and judge and condemn and expel. But he punted. We've been paying for it ever since, haven't we? Someone once said that the DNA of sin is deception. And someone else said, you never find in sin what you go in sin to find. Never. Always promises. Never delivers. Never ever delivers. And, and you know, church family, when you walk across the pages of Scripture, you just see story after story of the foolishness of self-deception. It shows up here in chapter 3. And you know, immediately after this came the blame shifting, Right? Right? The Lord God said, what's going on? And the man said, the woman you gave me. And then, you know, Eve, well, the serpent. and Self-deceived people, blame shifting. It happened in Genesis 3. Happened in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. Happens in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. Uh, the whole earth, they're, they're thinking we're going to be able to, on our own, build this tower to make a name for ourselves and reach the heavens. All throughout the book of Genesis. Shows up in the book of Exodus, where Pharaoh, who presumed to be God, kept God's people enslaved. And it took ten plagues for him to release God's people. Each one of those plagues corresponded to an Egyptian false god. And, and, and then it shows up in the book of Judges with Samson, uh, who, I mean, he was playing both sides between God's people and the Philistines and my goodness. Uh, uh, finally, he, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, Judges chapter 16, verse 20, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. That's how self-deceived he was. Some men die of shrapnel. 
Some go up in flames. Most may die inch by inch playing little games. Little games of self-deception. Book of Judges, 1 Samuel with David and this disastrous affair with Bathsheba. The DNA of sin is deception. Paul says in Galatians 6, 3, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. From Genesis 3 on, the Bible is just a sad story of people sitting in the darkness of self-deception. I told you it was depressing. Yeah. I haven't even gotten to us yet. (laughs) I don't mean to offend anybody here. No one deceives you more than you. No one swindles you more than you. No one cheats you more than you. And we're so good at it, we have this disturbing way of explaining our own self-deceit. So we say things like this. Well, I'm not a manipulator. I just have the gift of leadership. Okay. I don't lust. I just have an eye for beauty. I'm not angry. I just have a passion for truth. I'm not demanding. I just believe in excellence. I'm not envious. I just want the full range of God's blessing. I'm not a glory seeker. I just want to do something significant for God. (laughs) And I'll tell you who the experts in self-deception are. It's the preacher types. We preacher types can deceive ourselves into thinking that Bible knowledge and ministry skill and church growth know-how all equate to spiritual maturity. And when that happens, the darkness of self-deception blinds us. And self-deceived pastors don't think they need what they preach. And self-deceived pastors demand of others the very perfection they think they have attained. And self-deceived pastors take credit for what only grace can produce. 1 John 1.8 If we say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Where are you deceiving yourself today? Where, is it in your work? Is it in your relationships? Some of you say, why do all my relationships end the same way? It's because they start the same way. Is it in your marriage? Uh, There's a marriage enrichment book that I've recommended for couples who are prepared for marriage and uh, for couples who've been married 31 years. Sarah and I are going through it right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. It's titled, What Did You Expect? And in this book, the author tells of counseling a couple, very conflicted, 
very challenging situation. And in, in this counseling situation, the, the author asks the couple this question. What do you, do you as the biggest challenge in marriage? And simultaneously, both answered with the other's name. And the author said this. The author said, you know, at that point, as a counselor, I'm out of a job because no one in that room is asking for help. No one. If we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Self-deceived people are stuck. That's why Luke 1, 79 says that they're sitting in darkness. They're not going anywhere. They're sitting because they're stuck. Is there anybody here stuck today? Anybody? Anybody here self-deceived? Now what? Now what? Well, here's the glory of Christmas. Sermon's about to get better. The glory of Christmas, here's what the glory of Christmas is not. The glory of Christmas is not law, all right? See, law says you're you're sinning, you're in darkness, and so God's going to punish you uh, until you repent so that transformation can take place, right? And if transformation isn't taking place, then it means you have you know, enough, which means you, know, you, you need more punishment. And maybe you think that's what this sermon is. All right? Um, so, because of the sin. See, that, that's law. Sin, well, then you need to get punished for it so that you'll repent from it. And it's not what we believe here. That is not good news. That is not Christianity. Here's what Christianity is. It's grace. There I am, sitting in sin, helpless and hopeless and without power, out of nowhere, God in his tender mercy appears and he stuns me with his love and that love just melts my heart and transforms me so that I can repent. You see? Now that's what we believe. That God shocks me into love. That God stuns me into love. Listen, the gospel is, God does not love me if I leave the darkness. God loves me so that I can leave the darkness. And that's the glory of Christmas. By the mercy of God, the light of the truth in Christ overcomes the darkness of self-deception. See, on that Bethlehem night, Truth was born. Truth came. Truth grew up in Nazareth. And when truth turned 12, truth confounded the teachers of the law in the temple. And when truth turned 30, truth was baptized, not because he needed it, but because truth said to fulfill all righteousness. He was baptized in the Jordan and emerged from those waters to wage war on the self-deceptive darkness. The Son of Man came to destroy the work of the devil. 1 John 3a, Jesus came on a search and destroy mission. He came to wage war against the serpent. And what you need to understand is that the devil's only work is the work of deception. In fact, 
John 8, 44 says that whenever Satan speaks, he lies. Lying is Satan's native tongue. He's incapable of truth. And so truth waged war on Satan's dark world. Truth touched lives and healed. The deaf could hear. The blind could see. The leprous were cleansed. The dead were raised. And truth taught. And at times, it was tender truth. And at other times, it was tough truth. And for three and a half years, the light of truth shined on this little Roman province the size of New Jersey. But truth had enemies. Deceptive enemies. Cunning enemies. Underhanded enemies. And those enemies arrested truth. And in the cloak of darkness, put truth on trial. And Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, Everyone on the side of truth hears my voice. And Pilate replied, what is truth? He was looking at truth in the face, but he didn't want to face it. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't want it. And the enemies put truth to death on the cross at a place for deceivers and liars and cheaters and swindlers. Truth was crucified. All of Satan's lies were exhausted on the king of truth. Satan depleted his complete arsenal of deceit on Jesus at the cross. And truth died. But because of the tender mercies of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high on that resurrection Sunday sunrise. Truth opened his eyes. Truth woke up. Truth walked out. Truth lives. And after his resurrection, Christ appeared for 40 days, continuing to teach the truth of how Moses and all of the prophets point to him as the way and the truth and the life. And upon Christ's ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father, where he has claimed sovereign rule over everything that is seen and unseen, he has sent his Holy Spirit of truth upon his people. And that's us, this community of truth. And church family, truth is all we have here. Truth is all we have to offer here. Truth is our only weapon against self-deception. Truth shared in a community of love. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, here it is, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Listen, when someone loves you enough to speak truth into your life, you have just been a recipient of the tender mercies of God. And that is why, that is why in this community of truth, filled by the spirit of truth, we are to truth 
one another in love. Church, listen. Two years ago, I asked you to sacrifice. And you've sacrificed. And we've seen God's blessing in the all-in initiative. In our faith and in our church community here and throughout the world. I mean, you, you know, I asked and you, you came through. I want to ask you to do something more difficult. I want to ask that we move from being a gathering of individuals to a community of truth sharers and truth receivers. And you know what that looks like? It looks like James chapter 5, verse 16, where James says to God's people, he's saying it now, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It looks like brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other enough to carry each other. It looks like confessing our brokenness to one another. It's, it's Really, it's, it's not enough for us to merely confess our sins to God. Mysteriously, healing comes through confessing our sins to one another. Where, where you find a brother, you find a sister, and you ask them to help you. You ask them to help carry your burden. And I'm not, I'm talking about going beyond just confessing to your spouse. I'm talking about if you are a brother in Christ, and, and, and for propriety and for purity, brother in Christ, and, and, and for propriety and for purity, brothers need to confess to brothers and sisters to sisters. Somehow, some way, when we confess to one another and make ourselves vulnerable, my goodness, God shows up. That's what I want to ask you to do. You willing to make yourself vulnerable to another brother in Christ? willing to make yourself transparent to a sister in Christ. I had a time of confession with a brother in Christ. I just had to say, you know, I'm not loving my wife like Christ loved the church. I, I'm not very, I'm getting tired of carrying the cross. I'm getting tired of it. And my brother listened patiently and reflected truthfully and he did not let me off the hook but he didn't judge me you know and I walked away from that conversation with a clear sensation that the Lord has been there and healing is taking place that's what I'm asking you 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He said, he who is alone with his sin is truly alone. But confession is the reception of God's one-way love to us, distributed through another person. Love to us, distributed through another person. Confession is not something we have to do. Confession is something we get to do. Can you imagine a church community filled with brothers and sisters who gather around tables or spaces, two or three, lingering in the worship room or in the fireside room or in our cafe connection area, loving each other, sharing their lives with one another, praying for each other, confessing their sins to each other. Can you imagine husbands and wives humble enough to confess this truth to one another? I am the biggest problem in my marriage. The biggest problem in my marriage is not my spouse. The biggest problem in my marriage is not my schedule. The biggest problem in my marriage is me. Now you get spouses who are both willing to say that to one another truthfully, authentically, genuinely, humbly. And you can just watch the healing emerge. I'm the biggest problem in my marriage. Can this be a place where that kind of vulnerability can exist? Are you the kind of Christian who can be that vulnerable? Are you the kind of Christian who can trust another Christian? And are you the kind of Christian that other Christians can trust? I close with Bonhoeffer. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do no good. wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. And I love this line. You can dare to be a sinner. Thank God for that. Amen.